Hello, everybody. Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the third episode of the RIT Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my very special guest, Philippe J. Fournier, who runs the 338Canada.com website and writes for McLean's and L'Actualité. Hey, Philippe, how are you doing? Bonjour, Eric. It's a pleasure to speak to you again. I uh, just got my second dose this past weekend, and I'm recovering. My arm's a little stiff, but uh, I'm only a few more days away from uh, a little bit more freedom. So that's good news. Excellent. Excellent. That's good news. I got my second shot uh, 15 days ago, so I guess I'm all good to go now. Yeah, I think you were a little bit ahead of us in uh, in Quebec, uh, in Ontario. We were a bit. Well, the, the teachers, uh, the teachers, uh, you know, got into an early wave in April. And so uh, eight weeks later, I, I was lucky enough. You know, uh, we, we take some things for granted sometimes. Uh, we look around the world in Canada and in Quebec. It, did, it went pretty well, all things considered, except for the very beginning. But uh, feeling good right now about, uh, about what's going on this fall. Yeah, you bring up a good point. While uh, you do some very impressive work at 338canada.com, your your real job is, uh, you know, your is to be a teacher, and you teach people <laughs> about astrophysics or uh, or science at least, and it's far more impressive than uh, whatever I've done in my my lifetime. <laughs> uh, yeah, astrophysics, astronomy. Uh, I've been teaching that for now 18 years in Cégep. So for those who don't know, it's post secondary education in Quebec. It's going very well, uh, but now I'm part-time because, uh, yes, uh, 338 Canada and my writing for McLean's and Actuality take a lot of time. Uh, but I still, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, cushy job uh, with uh, job security. So uh, I'm not going to let it go for, uh, for uh, you know, uh, just for the, the being in media sometimes can be very unstable, as you may know, of course. Yes, but, of uh, course, of course. Well, maybe at the end we can discuss Star Trek versus Star Wars and uh, decide... Uh... <laughs> All right, let's let's actually get to what we're supposed to talk about here, which is politics. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was uh, Justin Trudeau's uh, tour to the West. Um, he went to Calgary, where he announced uh, funding for the Green Line, some transit in uh, in that city. And he went to British Columbia and signed a child care agreement with the province. He also did one in Nova Scotia this past week. So uh, what do we make of the fact that he's gone out West? On the one hand, you know, Delivering for uh, constituents in Calgary and British Columbia, things that they want and need. On the other hand, probably helps them out in an election. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And of course, the pandemic made that made so that our politicians could not travel as much as they wanted. And we know that Justin Trudeau, uh, whatever you think of him as prime minister, he's he's a good campaigner. He, he, he really likes to be on the field talking to people and making those kinds of an announcements. And when you look at the polling, well, there is a chance that a few seats could break out in Ontario, uh, sorry, in Alberta towards the Liberals, uh, maybe a few, a few downtown seats in Calgary, a few in Edmonton. In. And so making those announcements just before the campaign, and also, as you saw, Eric, some very poor polling for the Conservatives, Aaron O'Toole in Alberta, uh, maybe he can smell blood in the water, and uh, he figured he could win maybe three, four seats in Alberta. That would be a, a good uh, harvest for them. Yeah, I think so. I think they would like to win some seats uh, in Alberta. The, they won four back in 2015, so they'd like to win uh, at least some of those again. Um, and British Columbia, British Columbia has been a good place for them in the polls recently. Um, the Conservatives seem to be having some trouble in BC as well as in Alberta. So, you know, shoring up that vote in the suburbs in Vancouver with a childcare promise, um, it, it does certainly cement some pieces. You can kind of see the strategy. Like I said, we shouldn't just be too cynical. Like governments delivering for people <laughs> is part of the reason why they get elected. But 
you know, they have the train line that they promised between uh, Toronto and Quebec City, the high frequency yes. train with a, a right. stop in Trois-Rivières, which uh, is very nice for the people of Trois-Rivières who don't have a stop <laughs> currently. Um, also Peterborough, which is, you know, a little bit of a bellwether area. You have these announcements that, that are coming out in uh, Nova Scotia and British Columbia. I just saw today, and we're recording this on Wednesday, that Trudeau is actually in Gaspé and, and Percé in, in the Gaspé Z, right. a kind of place right. where you it, it, it's not easy to get there. And so you don't maybe want to waste a campaign day traveling out to the gas bay. But if you're doing it right now, it's not a bad thing. Absolutely. And it's, and it's a beautiful region of Quebec that, uh, that the Liberals, I think, won by less than 200 votes last time around. Uh, I think her name is Le Boutillier. She won a very close victory against the Bloc Québécois. So why not go there? Right now, Yves-François Blanchet is touring the regions of Quebec. And so you know the Liberal leader knows that he cannot let too many seats slip away in Quebec if he wants to get a majority. Uh, let's recall that the, uh, the Liberals won 35 seats in 2019. They won 40 in 2015. Uh, so to get at least 38, 39, 40 would be, uh, I think, a minimum to reach the majority threshold. So, yeah, you, it's, it's time, the right time to do it. Um, and about Vancouver, well, I, you know, the, the Conservatives were underestimated in uh, British Columbia in the last election. Uh, not by much, but a few points. And right now, my average, my polling average right now has basically the three parties tied up uh, between 27 and 31%. And with such a score, the Liberals could win four, five or six more seats in British Columbia than they did last election. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we have to, to remind ourselves that they want a majority. They, uh, they uh, were 13 uh, seats short last time. So if they can min win, you know, maybe three in Alberta, maybe five in BC, you're halfway there, right? More than halfway there. So, uh, yeah, this, this, this pretty much shows that the election is a done deal, right? It's not official, but <laughs> this campaign that we're seeing right now shows, yeah, okay, we, it's going to happen for sure. Part of me is wondering if we're all just going to be waking up on Labor Day in September being, oh, there isn't going to be an election. What were we wasting our time doing the last couple of months? But let's <laughs> uh, let's not assume that's going to happen just yet. But uh, while we're talking about the West, uh, and you had mentioned it, the conservatives in Alberta. Uh, so Trudeau was, uh, when he was visiting, he had a, I would say what looked like a somewhat awkward meeting with Jason Kenney. I don't think the two of them liked each other very much. And when he was asked about equalization, he made the point that, the rules uh, that are in place now were set in place by Jason Kenney and the cabinet that he was part of uh, when he was in government, Stephen Harper. And we saw Aaron O'Toole make an announcement that he was offering what they're calling an equalization rebate, which is more mm -hmm. or less that the provinces that they say are paying more than their fair share uh, would get some money back from the government. And this is to help out Alberta. Alberta would be the chief re recipient of that. Uh, it's the kind of promise that, again, not to get too cynical about it, um, you know, Alberta is the conservative heartland. They have a lot of MPs there, so they want to be showing that they're doing something for their MPs. But a conservative leader going out of his way to promise something for Albertans that is not going to do him any favors anywhere else, and in all likelihood, it's not going to help. It does suggest that the recent polls that we've seen, a couple of them where they're under 40 percent in right. Alberta. Uh, I don't think they're actually going to end up that low, but they have to be a little bit worried. Uh, you know, some of those Calgary and Edmonton MPs yeah. must be looking at those numbers and thinking, wait a minute, I thought this was a job for life and now I might have to fight for right. my life. It's, it's weird to see the Conservatives playing defense in Alberta. Uh, I, 
as if we would not know about it. Um, and, and I don't understand this strategy because, right, so some conservatives are disappointed with the conservative leader. Okay, that's, that's one thing. But what I'm wondering is that where are they going to go? <laughs> some of those Alberta voters are staunchly conservatives. And so will they vote for Maxime Bernier? Will they vote for the, the Maverick Party? So far, the polling shows that those parties are still marginal. I mean, they, they get a few points, but not enough to tip the balance in favor of the NDP or the liberals in the province. Um, so I'm wondering, maybe maybe we're looking at the percentages and what we should be looking at is the uh, the absolute number of votes, because maybe some, some conservative voters will just stay home. Uh, that's possible. But the equalization thing, I'm not a constitutional expert, so I will not uh, pretend to be one. But an equalization rebate, is that constitutional? Because that goes against the very, the, 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 the very founding of equalization. And so this will be a very interesting conversation to have. And I'm sure, I'm sure the, the, the uh, conservative MPs uh, for the conservatives were thrilled to hear about this, um, to, to, to know that, yeah, the, the equalization favors Quebec and Maritimes and Manitoba, but now the federal government is going to repay those provinces somehow. Um, so yeah, just wondering whether uh, they really uh, those conservative in Quebec really like this. Uh, it doesn't look good for sure. Yeah, I was thinking about those ten conservative MPs in Quebec. That uh, it, it's not something they'll be mentioning. I don't think on the campaign trail. And again, you mentioned earlier Trois Rivières. Uh, Trois Rivières the ones was won by the Bloc Québécois in uh, 2019 with 28 percent of the popular vote. It was a split vote. So. If the conservatives go down uh, just a little bit because of that, you could see the liberals taking that seat. Uh, and there's a few examples of those in the province. So, uh, yeah, that was a seat the conservatives were really hoping to win last time. There, they had as their candidate Yves Levesque, who was uh, the uh, mayor yep. of uh, Trois Rivières for a while. He is running again, so uh, at least he'll retain presumably some of that vote. But um, I'm not sure that a lot of uh, Quebec conservatives are bullish on their chances to pick up. I think it's going to be more about can they hold on to the 10 seats and maybe win a seat like Trois-Rivières. But uh, the Liberals are not going to make it easy for them with that train. Uh, <laughs> I don't it's know how much people in Trois-Rivières want to take the train, but I mean, it's certainly uh, going to help out. I, uh, it's, it's really hard to see the conservatives making any gains in Quebec right now. I mean, I, it's early and uh, of course I could be eating my words two months from now. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not even discounting Maxime Bernier making a comeback. Uh, he had 28% of the vote in both, lost by, I think it was nine points against uh, Monsieur Lehoux. Uh, and so they have really poor numbers in Quebec. And I think maybe, you know, many conservatives in Quebec are actually nationalist Quebecers. And they, it would not be a big step for them to vote for the Bloc Québécois. Uh, so... We'll have to wait and see, but um, it's, you know, the conservatives need at least, you mentioned those 10 seats in Quebec, they need those seats to win. Uh, and if they don't even retain those, that's, it's, it's bad news. Yeah. And especially if, you know, you add to that four lost seats in Alberta that they could have counted on before. Um, so, while we were talking, uh, I mean, we keep on, uh, it's kind of natural, I suppose, that we keep on going back to Quebec, but uh, going back out to the West. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there was uh, the news that we had from Vancouver Granville that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould is not going to be running again. She was elected as an independent last time. She took 33% of the vote. Uh, the, conser- uh, the liberal candidate finished six points behind. And when you look at the way that the vote shifted between 2015 and 2019, it was really that Jody Wilson-Raybould took the NDP and the liberal vote and right. just kind of 
took those two votes and was able to win with that. So the question is now, you know, does this make the seat a liberal win that is much more comfortable or could we still end up seeing that maybe some of that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould vote goes back to the NDP if they were motivated to vote against someone who or for someone who right. was standing against the liberals? Uh, how much of that vote is going to go back to the liberals this time? That's very interesting. It's very hard to do any modeling in these exceptions in these uh, electoral districts where you have a strong independent. But as you said, 33% of the vote. So it was not an overwhelming victory for Jody Wilson-Raybould. She won because of a split vote, and of course because she, you know, she, she, she of, the, of the name. Uh, but I'm looking at past results. If you transpose the results in the 2011 election, uh, so that's the Harper majority election. Uh, the conservatives won with 35%. And so it was not that strong to begin with. I mean, in a, in a, in a grand victory for the conservatives, they only had 35% of the vote in that riding. Uh, and of course, it, you know, it has changed a lot in 10 years. Uh, urban Canada has shifted away from the conservatives for the most part, including, of course, Vancouver. Um, I, I'm thinking it will lean liberal. Uh, perhaps some of it will indeed go to the NDP, but the NDP has, uh, you know, maybe a 25, 27, 28 um, uh, ceiling in that writing. So maybe a strong conservative with a split vote could make the NDP. But right now I have, I, I have it as leaning liberal. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think if the liberals are having a decent campaign and, you know, their numbers seem to be pretty good in BC, then you would put them as the favorites. Um, but if the NDP does well in BC, we've seen, you know, their numbers in British Columbia are pretty good. Uh, then that's the kind of seat that maybe they could pick up based on a split vote because the conservatives, as you said, they do have a base there too. Um, so if the conservatives are taking 25% off the table, right from the get go, um, you know, it, it doesn't take too much for the other two parties to, uh, kind of split things up and have a bit of a surprise. Uh, it's kind of interesting in Vancouver, uh, and uh, the lower mainland in general, there are a number of those seats that are three-way races between right. the liberals, the conservatives, and the NDP. And you know, at that point, it, you know, the local candidate can be worth enough to make a difference. There could be some local dynamics that kind of make it unpredictable, and it doesn't follow the same patterns as in the rest of the country. But there's going to be a couple of those seats where we couldn't be surprised, and they could buck a trend just because of the splits that uh, are a little bit hard to predict. You know, there's 42 federal seats in uh, British Columbia right now. And uh, the latest projection that I published uh, on Sunday, I have 10 toss-ups. <laughs> so uh, almost a quarter of the province's seat are toss-ups. Uh, and most of them are in the Vancouver and the lower mainland. So uh, you will, I'm pretty sure you will see uh, Jack Singh and uh, Justin Trudeau very often in, in, in the campaign, uh, campaigning around Vancouver and those suburbs. Um, the, I mean, the question, of course, we have to be careful with polls, as you know, because you're the poll expert in Canada. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, you know, sometimes in polling, there's confusion among voters between federal politics and provincial politics. Uh, that's why sometimes uh, the Liberals in Ontario are overestimated provincially. And I'm wondering, the NDP federally has been polling really well since John Organ's victory last fall. Maybe there's some of that also. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't need to be that much to make a swing. I mean, right now I have the NDP on average at 29% of the province. That is really strong. Is it possible that they're that strong? Uh, if, you know, if they're at not at 29 or 28, maybe they're at 24%, uh, that would make a huge difference. And it could flip maybe uh, four or five seats towards mostly the Liberals. 
Yeah. So you, I, again, I have my doubts that the NDP is that strong in a province. You could look at the same thing in Alberta, that uh, you wonder how much of that is the unpopularity of the UCP and Jason right. Kenney and how much of a problem that is for Aaron O'Toole, that in an election campaign, as you said before, what are those people going to do? Are they going to... Um, go back to the conservatives? Are they going to stay home? Are they going to, if they're saying they're going to vote for the Maverick party or the people's party right now, mm -hmm. are they actually going to do that on election day? Um, so Alberta was the, the province where the polls did the worst in the last election oh, yeah. in the federal oh, yeah. campaign. Uh, so, but even then add 10 points to the conservative numbers right now, it's still not good. Um, no, no, they're down 20 points on average. Um, is it possible that the, the, the polls would be missing 20% of conservative voters. It's, it's, it's a long stretch because when polls are, you know, as you know, in the last 10 years, yeah, there've been some polls that have been wrong, some campaigns where the polls were wrong, but they were not wrong by 20 points. Um, and so, you know, we're talking about BC 2012, I think, and then maybe Alberta. Uh, 2013, or, yeah, and then BC. 2013, yeah, yeah okay, yeah. That's, I'm, so, so those polls were wrong, but not by 20 points. Uh, I'm wondering whether what we saw in the states in the past to presidential election basically it's not that you're missing the uh, conservative vote as much as you're uh, missing the populist vote the extremes on either left or right you're missing because they don't trust the media they don't like pollsters uh, and they don't speak and right now we have of course left-wing populists in canada but they're not very uh, powerful or successful right now the populists are more on the right side of the political spectrum and so maybe maybe there's some of that that the polls are missing um, we'll see in due time, but I really doubt it's 20%. Yeah. If the conservatives still have 69% support in Alberta, like they did in the last election, polls aren't going to show up with them at 38. No, that's just no, not no. going to happen. Right. No. So they're down. Um, I guess we'll have to wait and see how, how far down they really are. Speaking of being down, uh, the greens, uh, that oh God, story what is happening. Oh my, I don't know. Every week it's something else. The, now the Canadian pr uh, press has reported that, uh, the green party federal council, uh, the people who seem to run the party, at, uh, at least that's what we're discovering over the last few weeks. They're considering withdrawing $250,000 in funds for, uh, enemy Paul's campaign in Toronto center. Um, I, I so don't understand <laughs> just throwing the towel in the in the in the, in the, in the district that was going to be hard anyway. Uh, let's be honest. Toronto Center was not uh, great writing for Anna Paul. I know she. I, I believe she lives there, or she she's yeah, close to yeah. Close to there. She's from so that area. Yeah, exactly. So it's a natural move to want to be an MP where you live or close to where you live. But it, you know, it was a weird choice of of, 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 of district. And then you have the party not siding with you. Uh, just pencil this one for the liberals, maybe. Uh, it's it's bad news for the Greens for sure. I, I'm not. I don't quite understand. Uh, now they say that their fund uh, their finances aren't good enough. That their fundraising, um, while it's been better, uh, their expenses are too high, and so they can't afford it. But you know, this two hundred fifty thousand dollars, where is it going to be better used for the Green Party than electing their leader? Uh, it it is just bizarre, and you know you can. You can uh, question some of the th decisions Anime Paul has made over the last uh, few weeks in terms of how she's handled this stuff. But the way that the party council has treated their own leader, I don't understand if you're a voter, how you can look at this and say, mm, this party's got his stuff together. Maybe, maybe, you know, we can put this aside. It just does it, you know. I wonder whether Canadians are noticing this and are caring about it and whether the, you know, the Greens will still get four, five, 6% of the vote, or 
is this going to just push people off during an election campaign? Uh, I'm not sure how, if we see stories like this during the right. campaign, right yeah. now, people might not be noticing, but the, you know, the day before debate, we find out that the, you know, the federal council has, who knows anything muted their leader again. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's just a disaster for this party. I don't understand why, why they wouldn't just, if they really dislike her and they really want her not to be leader, you don't have time. Wait until after the campaign's over. And also, you're not going to win this campaign anyway. There's no breakthrough coming your way. I mean, I don't want to be pessimistic about their chances, but you have to look at the numbers. I mean, I remember in 2019 when the SNC-Lavane story was raging. Uh, we saw polls with the Greens at 10, 11, and 12% nationally. Those, those happened. And so these were probably disgruntled liberals saying, you know what, uh, I care about the environment and the liberals are you know, not doing it for me right now. I'm going to vote Green. But we don't see that right now. We see them at their floor of 5 6%. And so what are you hoping to achieve? Uh, as you said, that, that $250,000, you want to split 300 ways and yeah. spread it around the country? That's not going to be uh, useful. I mean, if, if again, I, I spoke with many people in the Green Party in the past year, and I, you know, the exchange that I had with them is like, yeah, you want to <clears throat> move Canada past first past, um, past uh, first past the post system, but first to change the system, you need to beat the system. You need to find a way to elect MPs. And the example that you should follow is Quebec Solidaire, provincially here in Quebec, that they 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 knew that the national campaign did not matter as much since they're a small party. They concentrated their efforts in a few ridings and it worked for them. Uh, what will the Green Party do with all this, this funding in Outremont or in the West End of Montreal or you know, Northern Ontario? It's not going to help. You have to target. And why was there more story about uh, Guelph, for instance, in Ontario? Mm -hmm. You already have a, a, an MPP there. Uh, he's you know, relatively popular. He gets you know, a lot of airtime for uh, considering that the Green Party of Ontario is not that popular. You have 5% of the vote or something. Uh, so you have to concentrate your efforts to win MPs and then in a hope to change the system. I mean, the Green Party would love to have uh, a strong minority for the Liberals so that they, they can have the uh, balance of power. But uh, they need at least a handful of MPs, and it's not even sure that they will keep the two that they already have. Yeah, well, I think uh, I think they have some, some issues to deal with, and uh, I'm sure in the coming weeks, uh, there'll be more to come. The vote for whether to hold the vote on whether to uh, get uh, to replace Annemie Paul is supposed to take place on uh, July 20th. So that's only six days from now. Uh, so the story is not over. Huh. Well, it's yeah, the thing is, I, I'm thinking that there's no winner here. Either way, what uh, the result of the vote will not much change the outcome of this, uh, this internal strife that they're having. But yeah, oh sounds lose-lose. Okay, let's uh, do the polls of the week now. Uh, so it's been actually really quiet uh, on the polling front. Uh, so we're going to be focusing just on two polls here. Uh, one of them is the one from Abacus Data. Uh, it was more data from their June 28th to 30th poll. Uh, they surveyed 1,500 people. This was about the federal leaders. Um, right. I thought it was really interesting the way that uh, Dave Coletto, who uh, runs Abacus Data, summarized the way the, the leaders are. So for Singh, popular among women, younger uh, Canadians, British Columbians, uh, post-secondary education, and people who live in urban areas. For O'Toole, men, people with less education, uh, people in Alberta, those between the ages 45 and 59. And for Trudeau, 
one of the things I've always found interesting about Trudeau's numbers is that he's often very uniform and he doesn't really have that much appeal in one group over another. But they said of the ones that he did better in, Quebecers and people with a university education. What was your takeaway from, from this survey? Well, let's start with O'Toole because I think that's the most surprising. Maybe it's not surprising, but when you look at the numbers, the breakdown by numbers, uh, impressions of Erin O'Toole according to 2019 vote, only 59% of conservative voters have a positive impression. That's low. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a majority. That's good. But that's, that is low for Erin O'Toole. And if you look at other parties, uh, I think it's all between uh, 10 and 19. I see 19 for the Black Québécois, 10% for the Liberals that have, uh, that have a positive impressions. When you look at other leaders, what other parties think of them, it's, it's actually higher than that. And so for, for me, those numbers show that Erin O'Toole has actually, yes, he has a high floor, but he has a low ceiling. Where will he grow the party since uh, you know, voters from other parties don't seem to like him very much? Uh, so that's, a, that's a one of the takeaways. And also, uh, Erin O'Toole in Alberta. Yeah, Alberta, 29% positive, 32% negative. So he is a minus in Alberta. Um, maybe that's why he put on this cowboy hat and went to the stampede and did all those speeches. Although I don't want to overdo that because... Even the prime minister, uh, you know, I mean, Justin Trudeau went to the stampede in a few years and put the cowboy hat. So, but it was strange. Uh, maybe that explains it, that he needs to keep the, the base in shape um, because he doesn't have any good numbers in Alberta. Uh, what did you make of it? Well, yeah. Uh, one of the things that uh, David uh, Coletto pointed out was that even in the groups that O'Toole was doing better in, he was generally negative. Um, so he's really not winning in any group. And a lot of people did make um, some hay out of the fact that Singh, his numbers are very, very good. And on a lot of the issues that um, uh, Abacus asked about, so, you know, whether he, uh, a leader has good values, is an optimist, modern, interesting, great ideas, gets people right. like me. Singh did better than Trudeau in almost every category. The only ones where Trudeau did better was being an optimist and being modern. Um, that's assuming you want an optimist and a modern. Maybe people like pessimistic, old-fashioned people. I don't know. But uh the fact that Singh is doing so much better than Trudeau and then, well, why is the NDP at 20% in a good poll? I, I think what's important here is that, you know, the NDP leader is always in a, is in a better position because he's, he doesn't get the same kind of scrutiny as uh, a leader who's vying for government. That is the same thing for Jack Layton. Um, you're not going to be grilled as much about what your policies are going to actually be like in practice because it's not expected that you'll get to implement them. Uh, but when you compare Trudeau and O'Toole's numbers, uh, Trudeau beat O'Toole in all of these categories. And that's the real problem that uh, when you're trying to replace uh, a government, if your guy is not more popular than the outgoing yeah. person, it's hard to make that case. And he's pulling below his own party. I mean, he's basically yeah. he's pulling the party down. So uh, that's that's a huge problem. I uh, what did you make, Eric, of the uh, the comparisons uh, made between Jack Meet Singh right now and Jack Layton just before the 2011 uh, election? Because I I've I've read some stuff that made my eyebrows go up. Uh, I was wondering whether you had any reaction to this because yeah, we remember that. Uh, I think the questions were. Uh, which leader would you like to have a beer with? Which leader would you like uh, to be your uh, son's hockey coach? And it was Jack Layton, Jack Layton, Jack Layton. Yet he was polling at 15%. Then the campaign began. Michael Ignatieff was terrible. <laughs> and Jack Layton took over and became leader of the opposition. 
Um, so I saw some parallels uh, between Jack Peterson right now and Jack Clayton. What do you what do you make of that? Well, I think there's some there's two different things there. One is that Jack Clayton by 2011 had been leader of the NDP for eight years, um, so people did know him, and his numbers were always decent in that eight year period, but they weren't great. He wasn't a, a very he wasn't always very popular. He usually had as many people who disliked him as liked him that kind of thing on who people would like for the best prime minister, he wouldn't score very well. Um, what happened during the 2011 campaign is that people liked him, but I, I wonder how much of that was compared to the alternatives. When you think about who Jack Layton was up against in 2011, it was Stephen Harper, um, who had a lot of uh, you know qualities that people appreciated as a governing leader, but maybe not so much as the guy that you would go get a beer with, for example. Uh, and Michael Ignatiev, who was, let's face it, You know, he tried hard, but he was probably the worst leader the liberals ever had. And you just don't need to look at their election results as an evidence of that. Um, Singh, you know, he's in a good position in the sense that people seem to like him. So it does give him more of a potential. But he's up against a, a liberal leader who is better liked than uh, certainly than Michael Ignatieff was, but also more than I would say on a personal level, Stephen Harper was in 2011. And for the conservatives, I mean, there's not a lot of voters who are comparing the NDP and the conservatives that parts of Western Canada, but uh, not uh, not everywhere. So it's not a, a perfect comparison. And while I know that a lot of oh, new de Democrats would like to look at the 2011 election as the example of what's going to happen every time, um, it was an exception and it was an anomaly. And uh, new Democrats need to understand that 2011 is not going to happen every time they got lightning in a bottle at the, in that election and uh uh the stars need to line for that to happen again and more than 50 of uh, the ndp seats were where in quebec where jack beat singh has terrible numbers yeah uh, worst numbers uh, of uh, positive impressions i see 26 in quebec and something very interesting and what is driving those numbers down is uh, the support from uh, bloc quebecois voters only 11 Uh, you know, like Quebecois voters have a positive impression of Jack Beat Singh. And so there's, that's the thing, it, why those comparisons bothered me because I don't think Jack Beat Singh will make any gains in Quebec. There's, I mean, even Monsieur Boulderis and Rosemont Petit Patrie, the only NDP seat in, in, uh, in the province, uh, I think he's going to have a hard time to repeat. Um, it's a toss up right now in my model. And many times, as you know, uh, we noticed that the NDP could poll at 20% and end up with 17 on election day. Yeah. Uh, if that happens in Ontario, if that happens in BC, uh, again, we could be overestimating uh, you know, the, the NDP vote. Uh, Jack Beat Singh is doing, again, he's doing well because you know, people like his go happy um, attitude. Uh, but, uh, and the Bloc Québécois is not disintegrating like it was in 2011. Let's not forget that. Uh, Gilles Duceppe in 2011 became very grumpy in a matter of days because he saw the polling and it just got worse and worse and worse. And Jack Layton uh, benefited from that. So, yeah, I saw those uh, comparisons and it bugged me because I don't think it's a really good one. But it's interesting. It, you know, in, in recent polls, as you said, we saw the NDP polling at 20%, 21, even 22, according to Leger. I think it was the last one. Um, you know, if you just take that piece of data, if you tell me that the NDP is at 21%, my first reaction would be, ooh, the liberals are in trouble. Uh, but that's not the case. That's not the case. And so um, maybe, maybe there are some orange-blue voters uh, out west that could make a difference. Maybe, you know, I don't think there's many of them, but it's, uh, it's possible that they could make a difference in a few seats. 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, just to go back to the block, if the block collapsed this time, that vote's probably not going to the NDP. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. Right? No so it went <laughs> went to the NDP in 2011, but the, that yeah. vote has changed. And, yeah, and uh, so, yeah. So anyway, we'll see what happens with uh, uh, Singh on the campaign trail this time. He had a good campaign last time. Um, speaking of that, the other poll was the Nanos research poll. This is their weekly four week tracking poll. They always put out the best PM numbers, uh, every Tuesday. So this poll ended on June, uh, July 9th. So it's more or less most of June and the first week of July. Why I wanted to talk about this one is that, so on who Canadians wanted as a uh, prime minister thought was the best Trudeau was at 37% and Singh was in second at 18%. He was up four points wow. from the previous month, but O'Toole, was down six points from the previous month to 14%. Um, this is the latest poll that have shown O'Toole either running even or behind Singh on best prime minister. Uh, and as far as I could tell from the Nanos poll, which has been going back since to, I think 2014, this is the worst result for the con- for a conservative leader since mm. 2016 in the midst of Trudeau's honeymoon and when they didn't have a permanent leader. They had Rona Ambrose, but she wasn't going to be the prime minister. Um, it's just not a very good number. Oh, also, enemy poll at 1%. Like, we haven't seen it so much in support for the party, but yeah. this might be a sign that what's happening for the Greens has sapped her support. Because a month ago, um, if you look at the last cycle for the Nanos poll, she was at 4%. So wow. it's it's having a bit of an impact. I, I You know, we, you and I are numbers people, so uh, I'm very careful in my analysis. I, I don't want to do editorials, as, as you know. Uh, but I'm just wondering uh, and it's an open question maybe people will know the answer but what has O'Toole done that's so terrible that uh, he's not pulling that well I mean he, he's trying to pull the conservatives towards the mainstream uh, I, I, I know this carbon tax or this or sorry this carbon pricing mechanism uh, that he introduced uh, you know it was you know it was like kryptonite for uh, many conservatives but I think it was a way to show that the conservatives were uh, entering the 21st century, and we're trying to steal votes from other parties on this issue. Um, and I am just wondering if it, is it his personality? Is it his? I, I remember last year when he won. I listened to his speech. I, I was on Radio Canada doing analysis, and I thought he was pretty good. His French is pretty good. I think his French is better than Renaud Shears. Um, but for some reason, it's it's not sticking. It doesn't seem to be uh, to be working. And maybe in the campaign, he will find a new groove, and people will will take a better look at him. They will hear him every day on the TV and the radio. Maybe it's going to change. But uh, these are terrible numbers for conservative leaders, uh, considering also that it's also conservatives uh, voters that do not enjoy much. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know either why Andrew Shear's numbers at this point of his leadership were much better. Um, and I'm not sure if their style is all that different. If I had to think about what the two, what the things are that might be causing the problem for O'Toole is one, um, he does have more of a partisan approach, um, a bit of a, a bit of a sharper, uh, in a way of, of going after the liberals that I think people might be, it might grate on people a little bit, but one of the other things I think is probably, the biggest problem for him is that he, you know, during the conservative leadership campaign, he tried to run as a very conservative, very friendly to the social conservative wing, and then right. make the transition after the leadership race was over. We've seen that happen lots of times, but I think that there is a bit of a problem for him with authenticity that when he does come forward with moderate positions, I, I think 
it's seen, it might be seen by a lot of Canadians as, um, as cynical, not as authentic, that he's saying this to get appeal from moderate voters, but really he's still cozying up the social, con- like, I think that's a bit of the issue that could be one of the issues for him that, that, I, you uh, know, I don't disagree. I am sure it's part of it, but between you and me, I mean, he, he did what he had to do to win. That was, it was his, the exact right strategy to win the leadership. Um, yeah. I don't know if voters put- like that. Voters don't, uh, they like people to be <laughs> consistent and, but you know what, like you said, we'll see if, um, if the campaign's going to change anything. It was second after Peter McKay in the first round, right? Yeah. If I remember correctly. It was close, but he, Peter McKay won the first round. And so yeah. without the social conservatives, you would have lost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Leslie so- Lewis was actually leading in the popular vote, uh, like the raw popular vote on the round that she got eliminated on. So uh, it just shows he did need to do that to win. But, you know, if you make uh, sacrifices to win a leadership that cost you a general election, uh, you know, I guess it'll ask whether that was worth it. Okay, let's get to the questions. We had uh, a lot of good ones on Twitter. Um, I've highlighted a few of them. Let's uh, take this one first from Harry Hayfield. He said, for the Liberals to win a majority, they need 13 net gains from the opposition parties. Do you believe that these gains will come from all the opposition parties or just one? I thought that was an interesting way to think about it. Do they go through all the parties or do they just go through one party to get the 13? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. It doesn't seem like... Uh, the, the Liberals could make many gains at the expense of the NDP since the NDP is polling way better than 2019. Um, there are a few seats in Quebec. I, 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 assuredly, the Liberals will count on maybe three or four seats in Quebec uh, to take from the Bloc Québécois. Uh, I'm thinking Shefford, uh, Trois-Rivières, some uh, La Prairie uh, just south of Montreal uh, votes uh, voted Liberal uh, many, many years uh, in a row until it voted for the block uh, this time around. So that a few block. I'm thinking in the Maritimes, the few that they let go, they, they lost against the Conservatives. I'm guessing that they want to have back. Uh, so, and of course, they're hoping to keep to keep Fredericton uh, from the Greens. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking maybe a few seats here and there from each party. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's, you know, if they end up picking up, let's say 20 seats, I'd, I'd expect that, 15 would come from the conservatives and then a hodgepodge from the rest, you know, maybe three from the block, one from the NDP, maybe Fredericton, if we count that from the greens, but um, at least based on where the numbers are, I think it, it, it largely runs through the conservatives with a little bit of pickups from the block and anything they can gain from the NDP would be bonus. But uh, I think, I think it's largely going to be the conservatives, but I don't think they can do it by just winning from one party. Well, that's true because, again, the Liberals will be strong in urban Canada. Uh, and in urban Canada, the Conservatives are, were already uh, not very popular outside of Alberta. So, yeah, yeah, I think you're right about this. Mostly they would come against the Conservatives if, of course, they do it. That's, that's not a sure thing yet. <laughs> uh, let's get to the second question. These are I actually took three questions and put them together because they're all about the NDP. So uh, this one was about uh, from Grayson Pollard. He asked if the NDP goes all in with fundraising and volunteer teams and the riding of Sandwich Gulf Islands, do you think they would be able to take it from the Greens, judging by the situation the party is in? David Quayle asked, uh, he just, it wasn't really a question. He said, a deep dive on the NDP outside of Quebec and uh, the Liberals in Alberta. We already talked a bit about the Liberals in Alberta. And then uh, Jason asked, do you think there is opportunity for the NDP to surge in areas the Liberals are weaker in? And he said, as an example rule, Ontario. 
just to kind of tackle them, uh, the first one, Sandish Gulf Islands, I think that that is Elizabeth May's writing. I'm not sure if it's the Green Party's writing. I would expect that she yeah, would still win. Is. Yeah, Elizabeth May from the Green, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, but what I mean is that it is literally her writing, that she wins this because it's hers. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I would suspect that the Greens are still going to hold that, though her vote might come down a bit. I mean, the NDP had 13% of the vote in 2019 and 9% of the vote in 2015. So they would have to at, at least triple their vote uh, and leapfrog the Liberals and the Conservatives. Um, so, I mean, unless... Unless Elizabeth May decides, I, I think she's running again. I, I, yeah. I think that's what she said. Uh, unless she has a terrible campaign, I'm, I'm guessing she's uh, she's invincible. But um, for the the NDP finished fourth, so I you know even if the Green go down, the Greens go down by a dozen points, uh, it's going to be very hard for the NDP to uh, to catch up to them. Yeah, and Elizabeth May won that seat in 2011 from the Conservatives, not from the NDP. That's true. Um, that's true. The NDP, uh, these two, I think, are really the NDP outside of Quebec and whether they can take advantage of weakness in liberal areas. I don't think so. And, you know, I don't see that uh, the NDP is going to win in rural Ontario or, or rural Alberta because the liberals are weaker there. Uh, it's a lot of the same base. The NDP doesn't really have any rural seats aside from in northern Canada right. and the northern parts of provinces. So um, I would suspect that they don't have that opportunity. But outside well, of Quebec, well, you could do, do you disagree with me? Well, I know I, I mostly agree, but I would flip the question. Where are the Liberals weaker now than they were in 2019? Uh, the numbers show nowhere, basically. The, the numbers are roughly the same in Ontario and in Quebec. Um, if you, again, if you pull, you know, all the numbers and you average them out, they're a bit stronger in Atlantic Canada, although it's very close and there's a higher uncertainty. They're stronger in Alberta than stronger in BC. Uh, maybe you can split some seats. Uh, the, un, uh, you know, there's one, I forget the name, but it's in Northern Saskatchewan. Doesn't it? Uh, Doesn't it? Uh, Churchill yeah. River, uh, Mississippi. You know, maybe, but that would be the conservative losing that seat. Uh, so, it's a good question. It's just that I, it, you know, the, the liberals don't seem to be any weak, weaker anywhere uh, than they were in 2019. So, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I could answer that question. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, you you did mention uh, the NDP in Quebec. I agree with you that gains are not likely, and I think Boulogne will be fine. But maybe. Uh, hmm. That you might be within spitting distance of his writing, so uh, oh, I'm in this writing, <laughs> okay. Well, then maybe you maybe you know more than me, but um, but outside of Quebec, uh, you know, Atlantic Canada, uh, Jack Harris not running St. John's East, I don't see them winning a seat in Atlantic Canada, uh, Ontario. I think they do have some opportunities to regain some seats, they're doing okay. You know, maybe they could take a seat like Davenport or something like that in Toronto, in Toronto. um. Aside from that, you know, maybe here and there, a couple gains, it's hard to see. Um, you know, they had picked up a couple, they picked up uh, uh, an extra seat in Winnipeg in the last election. I'm not sure if there's extra gains there. I, what would be interesting, though, um, you know, we, we've talked about how they're doing better in BC, a couple of seats that they could do well there. But do they end up winning a couple of urban seats in Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, because of the conservative weakness? Can they win back a riding in Regina or Saskatoon? And maybe win a second seat in Edmonton. Those are my questions. It, these are uh, these are all possible. Uh, I'm not sure it's very likely. Um, again, the Conservatives' vote would have to completely collapse. I mean, 
if if uh, if let's say hypothetically the the conservatives fall to i don't know 45% in alberta then maybe yes there's a few urban seats but I, I still have doubts that, I mean, there's a saying by uh, Farid Zakaria in the United States that says, uh, uh, Democrats uh, love to fall in love, but conservatives uh, fall in line. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure it's true all the time, but then again, those disgruntled conservative voters most likely will still go out and vote conservatives. And so I will have to wait and see if that holds, uh, but they would have to completely collapse for the NDP to win multiple seats in those provinces, I believe. I think they could, I think, I mean, if I was Jagmeet Singh, I'd be trying to get back in the good graces of Rachel Notley and see if she might uh, door knock at Edmonton Griesbach for the, uh, for the NDP. Um, and like Regina and Saskatoon with the, when they redrew the boundaries before the 2015 election, there are, there is one, at least one seat in each of those cities that is better for the NDP. Um, but uh, the polls have not looked that good for the NDP in Saskatchewan. Uh, Singh is still not very popular in Alberta or Saskatchewan, so it might be tough. Um, but yeah, I think BC is probably, and a couple of seats in Ontario, those are probably where they can pick up some seats. I mean, I have in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, my average is 25% for the NDP, which is, which is really good, which is really good for them. It's just that I have the Conservatives above 40%. Yeah. Uh, so yes, maybe maybe a couple of seats, but again, there's no there's no waving coming out unless unless those positive impressions, those positive numbers for Jack Beat Singh translate into actual votes. Uh, we know that's it rarely happens. Uh, uh, but again, I, I, there's uncertainty there, so we'll see. All right, let's get to the last question. This was from uh, Conrad Gorskowski. He said, "How much influence does provincial politics play in federal elections in each province, and vice versa?" Um, how about you take? Do you want to? Do you want to start with Quebec? What do you think? Uh, well, we are in the post-referendum era in Quebec, uh, so things have changed a lot. Uh, I would say that they used to matter a lot. Uh, the Bloc Québécois had uh, their greatest uh, elections at the same time. The Parti Québécois was in power, with the exception of 2004, but that was largely the sponsorship scandal. Um, and when the Parti Québécois fell down, uh, they got a minority uh, by luck in 2012, but the, the, the Bloc Québécois also down. So, so there was, you know, there was some fluctuations in Quebec. Um, but as you very well know, in Ontario, usually voters like to vote for different colors, federally and provincially. And it goes back, I think, all our lifetime. Uh, when you have a strong liberal uh, provincial government, they vote conservative federally and vice versa. So... Is it a coincidence? Well, it can't be a coincidence if it happens so many times for so long. You know, Doug Ford next year has to go into an election campaign that I think he's going to win, but it's going to be much harder than the last time. I think he would love to have a campaign against Justin Trudeau. And you know what? Justin Trudeau maybe loves to have a campaign right now, and he can point to Ford and Kenny as adversaries. So, I, th I think uh, it's good to have a good villain uh, in your in your uh, in your campaign, and uh, for Justin Trudeau, those conservative premiers, as I mean, I mean, I remember uh, Jason Kenney in 2019. Did he mention Justin Trudeau more often than Rachel Notley? It's possible. You know, you need a good villain. <laughs> I don't want to be cynical, but that's I think that's how they roll. Yeah, in Ontario, that uh, uh, it was a few years ago. I wanted to because people always say that if one party's in power in Toronto. Uh, people send another party in power in Ottawa. And it seemed like the kind of thing that sounded true, but must not be. Uh, but when you look at it, it is. It's, it was something it like 85% of the time. 
because um, right. you can if you go back in the history, the liberal dynasty, uh, Oliver Mowat, that was when John A. Macdonald was in, in uh, the time when the conservatives ran um, uh, Ontario for from the 1940s to to uh, the 1985 election. That was the time when it was, you know, Saint Laurent and Trudeau and and when the liberals were very po- uh, popular in in uh, in Canada. So we do see this pattern. And I, I, I agree with you, uh, and I wonder as well, is it a coincidence? Are voters actually thinking that way? Is it a cyclical thing? I don't know. But uh, it's hard to go against that. Um, John Kennedy winning 100 seats out of 101 in 1993, I think it was. And then Mike Harris a year and a half later winning a majority. Yeah. So yeah, it, it happens too, many, uh, too often, I think, to be a coincidence. <laughs> If we take it now, if we look at the other two, uh, so if we look at Atlantic Canada and Western Canada, Atlantic Canada, I think the biggest difference is that the conservative parties there, the progressive conservative parties there are far more centrist than the federal conservative party. Uh, Dennis King, for example, in in PEI is probably the least conservative conservative premier in the country. Uh, And Blaine Higgs, when it serves his purposes, has been more than happy to come to an agreement with the federal liberals when it works out for them. Uh, so I, 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 there's, I think there's less of a, an overlap. Um, although we have seen, for example, that the Greens doing much better, the federal Greens and PEI, New Brunswick in the last election after those provincial campaign. So there's definitely a link uh, between those two out in, uh, and, and Atlantic Canada, along with maybe Ontario, the only places where the, the party system is the same, right? That's where right. you've got the three major parties and the Greens, and um, so there is that overlap. But Western Canada is where it's very different. In most of those provinces, it's just a conservative party, whether it's the BC Liberals, the UCP, the Saskatchewan Party, or the Manitoba Tories versus an NDP. And that's where I think it gets complicated because those NDP, um, those Democratic parties across Western Canada are a bit of a coalition of federal NDP and federal Liberal voters and the conservative parties generally are just the conservative party, but it, it is uh, uh, that split, I think, makes a big difference. I'm sure Jack Mead Singh uh, raised a few eyebrows when he saw John Horgan and Justin Trudeau striking that deal because, you know, that doesn't help him. Uh, it helps John Horgan for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, federally, uh, the voters for uh, Rachel Notley, uh, some of them will go federally NDP, but many of them could go liberal. Uh, and would be very comfortable with that. So this is going to be uh, the, the urban parts of uh, those two provinces, BC and Alberta, will be very interesting in the next campaign. Yeah. And uh, John Horgan, arguably, I, I actually, I don't even think it's arguably, the most important new Democrat probably in the country and the most powerful oh, yeah. one. There's a huge amount of influence between the provincial and federal politics, but it's not always a one plus one kind of equals two kind of scenario. It's just the influence of the political scene federally, is used by provincial leaders when it's to their advantage and vice versa. Um, so I'd say it's it's probably one of the oldest things in, in Canadian politics that you can't separate the federal and provincial, but you can't equate them either. They go and in and Quebec, uh, I released a poll. It was in the spring. I, um, uh, it was a Quebec poll, uh, but it had both federal and provincial numbers and you could break it down those uh, who, uh, so those CAQ voters. So about 50% of Quebecers, depending on the polls, those CAQ voters, who do they vote for federally? And it was almost a three-way split between the Liberals, the Bloc, and the Conservatives. So the CAQ really is a coalition. Um, and they, they vote three ways uh, in the federally. So this, maybe it's the, the Quebec right now is the exception. 
as usual. <laughs> All right. Well, this was a lot of fun, uh, Philippe, and uh, we'll have to do it again. Uh, so thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. And uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll speak again soon. It was a pleasure, Eric. Uh, merci beaucoup. Thanks for having me. And also, uh, I want to say by ending this, uh, best of luck in your new project. I think it's awesome. I've been reading it. I subscribed as the founding subscriber, I think it's called, a founding member. Uh, I subscribed and I encourage everybody who's listening to this to do it because it's really a great project and I wish you the best of luck. Okay, today on the Every Election Project, my look at Canada's election history, we're going back 100 years to the 1921 Alberta provincial election that was held on July 18th, so a century ago this week. At the time, Alberta had been a province for only 16 years. It had come in in Confederation in 1905, and the party that had governed Alberta since the beginning of Confederation for Alberta was the Liberals. Yes, that's right. The first political dynasty in Alberta was a Liberal dynasty. Charles Stewart, he had been Premier of Alberta since 1917, so he had only been in power for about four years. The Conservatives, they were still the official opposition. They were led by someone named Albert Ewing. But in the end, the real opposition in the 1921 provincial election in Alberta was from a new party, the United Farmers of Alberta. Now, at the time, they were led by uh, an American who was named Henry Wise Wood. Now, he wasn't really supportive of the United Farmers becoming a political party. The United Farmers were more of an advocacy group, more of a, uh, an association of farmers that were trying to represent farmer interests in politics. This was part of a wave of farmer progressive uh, politics that was sweeping really Western Canada and also Ontario after the First World War. This was a time of upheaval. It was the end of the war. There was the Spanish influenza uh, that was still causing some problems in Canada. This had been a period of labor strife, uh, the Winnipeg General Strike in 1919, for example. So this was a time when people were looking for something different. And for farmers, groups like the United Farmers was that option. We saw in the 1919 provincial election in Ontario that the United Farmers were able to form a government. Now, Henry Wise Wood, he didn't really want to see the United Farmers govern Alberta. He was supportive of something that was called group government. This was the idea that different economic groups would sit in a legislature and work together to govern a province. So there would be a farmer group, there would be a labor group, there might be a, a business group. He didn't really want to have government, he wanted representation. But by 1919, the United Farmers in Alberta, they decided they wanted to get into politics, and they won a provincial by-election that year. By 1921, it was time for the Liberals to consider holding an election. It had been four years since the previous election in 1917. The Liberals looked to neighboring Saskatchewan and thought they saw some good signs. The Liberal Party in Saskatchewan, which had also governed since that province entered Confederation in 1905, had staved off the farmers in a June provincial election. Now, the Liberals were friendly to agriculture in Saskatchewan and also in Alberta. Charles Stewart was a farmer. He thought that if Saskatchewan could do it, Alberta could as well, that they could prevent the United Farmers from becoming a force politically by trying to represent the interests of the farmers. But what was actually less of a good sign for Charles Stewart and the Liberals was that there was a federal by-election that took place in Medicine Hat in June of that year, and the United Farmers won it big. And he probably should have taken that as a warning, that at least in Alberta, the United Farmers were the party with, uh, with some momentum. Now, the United Farmers had to get quickly prepared when Stewart called a snap election, but they had 35,000 members at the time, and so they were able to quickly nominate 
more than 40 candidates. Now, what was behind this? Now, according to W.L. Morton, who wrote a book on the Progressive Party in Canada, he said in Alberta, quote, Behind the frenzy lay four years of complete or partial crop failure, uncertainty with respect to the price of wheat, and the sense of crusade arising from the farmer's entry into politics. Now, what the UFA wanted to do, they wanted to defeat party politics. It wasn't that they wanted to get rid of the Stuart government. It's that they wanted to get rid of that style of governing, that style of partisan politics. They wanted to replace it with that group government. They wanted to replace it with representation of different economic groups in the legislature. They didn't actually want to form a government. Now, during this campaign, the UFA was really able to co-opt the conservative vote and even some of their candidates. The conservatives recognized that the UFA was really the best chance of defeating Stewart and the Liberals, and a lot of conservative voters and part of the party organization went behind the UFA, despite the fact that the party was actually more of a progressive party and by the standards of the time. Now, the UFA was able to win seats throughout southern and central rural Alberta, while the Liberals retained the North and their base around Edmonton. Some Labour and Independent candidates were also able to be elected in Calgary and other parts of southern Alberta. When the dust settled, the UFA emerged with 38 seats, and despite the fact that they didn't really want it, that meant that they were a majority government. The Liberals, they were reduced by 19 seats to just 15, while four Labour MLAs and four Independent MLAs were also elected. The Conservatives, who had won 19 seats in the previous election, were reduced to zero. The Liberals actually won the popular vote. They had 34% of the vote, but that's because they ran a full slate of candidates. They were down 14 points from the 1917 election. The UFA, which didn't run a full slate, finished with 29% of the vote. The Labour, Independent, and Conservatives, they each split uh, the rest of the vote with about 10% each. The Conservatives actually only ran 13 candidates, so it shows that they really decided to get out of the way of the UFA. Now, the thing was that Wood was not the leader of a party. He was the leader of that movement, and so they needed to find someone to become the new premier of Alberta. Wood first invited John E. Brownlee, uh, who was a lawyer who worked within the United Farmers and the United Grain Growers in Alberta, to become premier, but he rejected it. Instead, uh, the title went to Herbert Greenfield. He was the vice president of the UFA, and Brownlee instead became attorney general. Greenfield's time in office was not a particularly good one. He resigned in 1925 after four years of depression in Alberta, and he ended up being replaced by Brownlee, who would go on to be premier until 1934. Now, the UFA formed the second dynasty in Alberta's political history, and some would argue was actually an early ancestor of today's NDP. The election in 1921 is a bit of a centuries-old reminder that when things shift in Alberta politics, the results can be pretty dramatic. And that's it for the RIT podcast this week. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the RIT.ca. And if you haven't, you still have a few days to take advantage of the 15% off special offer and get full access to all the content on the site. I'll be back next week. Until then, thanks for listening.